Thanks, guys. Oh. And that wreck of the kids' graduation. Oh, dear. I've known some of those guys when they were born. It's just amazing, isn't it, to see. I don't want to speak on a kid's graduation again. It's just too, you know, I'm just overwhelmed with what God's doing. It's wonderful, isn't it? Just their stories is the story of our community. And what God's done in them is who we are. And um, so this is our, our meeting today is in our series called Tuning In. And we are, um, this is our series in the summer where we get to basically hear from the speakers what God's speaking to them about what he's been doing in their, in their lives. And last week I uh, shared my story of moving from victim to creator and how the Lord spoke to uh, myself and Caroline about that theme about a year ago and how we've been living that out um, uh, over the last year. And it obviously hit a nerve because a number of you have been saying to me subsequently, yeah, I need more or how? I need more. How do I move from victim to creator? What does that look like? What's your, your, your uh, journey on that? And, um, and you don't have to have been here last week. If you can pick it up online, I'd encourage you to do so. But this is, this is part two, really. But I'll give you a little summary. It basically starts with a principle uh, that we get from Genesis 1, verse 26, which says this. Let ma- let, God says this, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. Let us make him. Let us make man in our own image. It's the reality that uh, the biblical picture, the story, the worldview that we're given, that we've put our hope and our trust in, is that we are not just a random collection of molecules wandering our way through life until we die into an empty, pointless eternity. That is not who we are. We're made in the image of God. And, and, and many believers uh, feel like it's through the evolutionary process that God guided that. And some believe in, uh, many also believe in instantaneous creation uh, that God created through that. I'm not looking at that. What I'm looking at is the fact that God created. He, however he did it, I'm not so sure, but he did it. He created us and we are here. And I don't have to, I can be agnostic on how he did it. I believe that he did it. And we are created and we are made in his image. We are creators and that's what, I believe, that's what I believe, is he has created us and he's made us in his image as creators. We're made in the image of God. But the, the, the issue is that as we're born to be creators from our first steps, you know, from your very first finger painting to your, 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 the car that you design now at work to the, the child that you care for who's wounded and hurt to, I don't know, the hours you spent learning to play the didgeridoo. I, I don't know. Why. Anyone here play the didgeridoo? There was someone in the first meeting, believe it or not. Whatever it, whatever it is, whether it's your service to the community or the way that you want to tell people about Jesus, whatever it is, you were born to create out of your spirit, you were born to make a difference on the, on, on the planet, to change people's lives, to leave this place a, a better place after you go, to leave a legacy for the next generation that they can build on. You were born to change the world. You're not nearly convinced enough. I might have to keep going on this point. You got that. But the reality, thank you, the reality is that so many of us can get ourselves stuck in what, what, what I've heard termed victim thinking. And when we're thinking like victims, we get stuck in this place where uh, what happens is we, we feel like there's no way forward, like there's no way to move or progress. We feel like the world is against us or things are against us and that we just get to this place where we're powerless to change, that it's outside of our control. And, and, and most of us don't think like that in every area of our life, but what I've discovered is that most of us think like that in some area of our life. <laughs> That there are areas, and this is what I've been on a journey over the last year of discovering, there are areas where I've begun to think or have been thinking for many years like a victim, as if I'm stuck, as if I'm powerless in that place. And it might be for you in your marriage or in your family life or in your workplace or in your community or in your extended family. It could be in your own personal progress as a person. 
areas of sin that you just feel like, I've lived with this my entire life, I don't think I'll ever be free. Whatever it is, there are numbers of areas in most of our lives that we feel like victims, where we feel stuck, where we feel powerless. But the reality is this, Jesus said this to the church, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. The church has been called to make the difference, to change the world, to be light in the darkness, to be salt that holds back the decay. But the problem is, for much of its history, the church has retrenched. The church has ghettoized. The church has held back from its God-given destiny and just kind of clung together, hoping that maybe we can make it through (laughs) instead of being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The church has not been that. You know, Many, many years ago, Caroline was working, um, uh, my wife Caroline was working in the night shelter, and she uh, worked there, I volunteered there for a while, and while she was there, she met a guy, and um, his story, uh, like many, was that he was very broken through his homeless experience, and, and, and so much so, was he was posturing to be someone he, he wasn't really, to those around him, and uh, at one point, I think he said to, to Caroline, I, I own Cavendish Street, and she said, what, what do you mean you own Cavendish? It's a street in Bedford. He said, I own Cavendish Street. He said, well, she said, well, in, 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 in what way do you own Cavendish Street? You know, you're, you know, you're living in the night shelter. In what way do you own a street? He's like, no one goes down Cavendish Street without my permission. And she said, well, I drove down there the other day. I didn't even see you. He said, but I knew you were there. <laughs> now, that's funny and sad at the same time, isn't it? Which is sadder, though, A broken man claiming an inheritance that's not his, or the sons and daughters of the living God not claiming an inheritance that is theirs, which is sadder. And the reality is that as we uh, get out of our victim thinking and become the creators that God has made us to be, this world will change because we're born to change the world. And I was praying this week, I was saying, Lord, give me an example from the scripture of someone who moved from victim thinking to creator, and the name immediately came into my mind, Gideon. Gideon. So the story is from Judges chapter 6, and uh, the, the story basically goes like this. The people of Israel at the time had follow, uh, fallen away from following God, and as a result were overrun by an enemy army called the Midianites. And these guys were brutal, they were killers, and, and basically every time there was a harvest, they would swoop in, they would steal the harvest, they would steal the, the, the sheep, the goats, they would leave the people impoverished, starving, and then they would just, just head off again to some other nation. They're just kind of marauding through uh, the Middle East, ransacking countries as they went. Uh, and, and the people of Israel were in this situation, and they cried out to God for help. And God, it says, sent an angel. Now, I know for those of you who are from my background, uh, an atheistic background, you'll uh, understand, as soon as I mention the word angel, you think, oh, here we go, angels. But the reality is this. The Bible paints a picture of a supernatural world. We live in a supernatural world. There is a natural element we can see, but there is a supernatural element. And that's a whole other message, but the reality is in this story, an angel rocks up. And what happens is this angel turns up and he finds Gideon hiding in a wine press. Now, the wine press was a wooden or a stone construction used to crush grapes. And it was, it was hidden, obviously, because it's got walls it needs to contain the grapes. But instead of crushing grapes, he's hiding in this place, threshing his wheat, because he doesn't want the Midianite army to see how much grain he's got. He's going to thresh it there in secrecy, hiding out of fear of the marauding armies, so that he can keep his, keep his food and ferret away somewhere before they come. And what happens is the angel finds him in that place, and this is what it says in Judges 6. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied. That's the first point. Always be polite to an angel. You know, if you meet one, 
sir, you know, I think is, a, is an appropriate response. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord has brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us. He's handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, I'll be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as, as if you were fighting against one man. And I've got to paraphrase the rest of the story because it's a long story. It's worth reading in Judges 6. But basically what happens is that the next step that Gideon has to take is to tear down the uh, altar to, to uh, an idol called Baal that's in his father's house. It's outside in the kind of courtyard of his father's house. And God says, tear that thing down because I want you to build an altar to me. And so he goes, not in the daytime, at night because of fear. He tears the thing down. And the townsfolk, when they hear about what he's done, are outraged. They come and they say, who's done this? They find out it's Gideon who's done it and so what happens is they demand that he's put to death but his father stands up for him and says look if these gods that we've been worshipping are real gods they can stand up for themselves leave him alone so his father I love dads like that and so his dad stands up to him his life is spared and then he builds an army 30,000 men he recruits to his cause but God says to him look Gideon basically if you save the day with this army of 30,000 men you're just going to get the glory you guys will just think you did it yourselves it's too big I want less people and so they whittle down the army to 300. And with those 300, Gideon routes the enemy army and has a massive victory. That's, a, that's the principle. And, and the reality is when we read stories from the Old Testament like that, we have to remember that God gives them physical lessons so that we can learn spiritual lessons. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 10. These things happen to them as examples for us. So the point for us this morning is what are the spiritual lessons that we can learn of of moving from victim to creator, from Gideon's story? And And I think there are three things. Firstly, it's about a change of heart. Secondly, it's about a change of focus. And thirdly, it's about a change of action. A change of heart, what's that about? Well, our heart is made up of our identity, our thoughts, our emotions... And when we're in the victim state, when we're thinking like victims, well, see if you can recognize any of these. Victim thinking believes I am a victim, whereas creators realize Christ took my place as the ultimate victim. Basically, Jesus took the slot as victim, and that slot is already filled. And creators realize that. Victim thinking blames God, creators partner with God. You know, one of my stories, and I've probably told you before, is uh, when I got to the real low point of my life and I shook my fist at God and I said, what is wrong with you? And you know what happened? Nothing, apart from it started raining. And I trudged home in the rain, feeling it wallowing in my self-pity. But I consider that one of the turning points of my life because it was the first time I got real with God and began to realize the problem was not on his end, but on my end. (laughs) And it was that point. But victims realize they don't blame God. They realize that they can partner with God. Victim thinking says, I can't. Creators say, I can do all things through Christ. Victim thinking says, I have no choice. Creators know that they always have a choice. Victim thinking believes I am alone. Creators realize they can never be alone. Victim thinking focuses on what's been taken from me. Creators focus on what can't be taken from me. What does the Bible say? These three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. What's the point? They can never be taken from you. Faith, hope, and love, you can only give up. They cannot be taken from you. No matter what is taken from you, faith, hope, and love are yours. You can hold on to them. Victim thinking believes there is no way out. 
Creators think, until I find the way out, let's turn this prison into a palace. (laughs) Think about Joseph, unjustly thrown into a prison, yet he turns it into a palace. Victim thinking focuses on who I can't be. Creators focus on who I am and can be. Victim thinking has lost hope. Creators find and generate hope through Christ. Victim thinking tries to drag others down. When I'm thinking like a victim, I am a black hole of life. I suck my... Caroline, I'm trying not to look at Caroline at this point. I suck the life out of everyone around me. I just suck the life out because victim thinking is like that. It tries to drag others down, whereas creators realize when I'm down, that's a great place to lift others up. That's a great place to lift others up. Victim thinking forgets the good things that God has done. Creators feed from the memories of what he has done. Victim thinking makes me wallow in negative emotion. Creators express the pain but turn it to worship as a sacrifice of praise. Victim thinking is captive to our own thoughts. Creators take every thought captive. Victim thinking criticizes others' motives. Creators accept we all have mixed motives and thinks the best. Victim thinking believes others are more fortunate. Creators celebrate in the blessings that we have. Turn to the person next to me and say, I'm so glad I don't battle with any of those thoughts. I mean, I, I, I'm, I feel sorry for you. I mean, your life must be so tough. This is the reality, isn't it? Is that when we think like victims, it's probably not in every area of your life, but there will be pockets, there'll be areas, there'll be strongholds, there'll be enclaves in your heart where you think those kind of thoughts. How do I know? Because I've thought them all. (laughs) That's a condensed version of my journal because that is the reality of victim thinking. It will invade us and I've seen it in my own life. And the story about Gideon shows us the fundamental issue with victim thinking is this. It's based on fear. It is rooted in fear. Fear that I haven't got enough. Fear that I'm not enough. Fear that I can't get what I need. Fear that I won't be able to get to what I need. Fear that others are going to stop me getting to what I need. Fear that's going to believe that others that are going to stop me achieving my destiny. It's fear, 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 fear. Fear that I've made a mistake that I can never rectify. Fear that even God can't help me out of this situation. It's fear. Fear is the root of all victim thinking. And when I realize that I'm thinking like a victim in a certain area... I found a great question, and Caroline and I have reflected on this the other day. A great question for that is this. What am I afraid of? <laughs> what am I afraid of? Because if I can expose the fear, that's the beginning of a change of heart. You know, one of my favorite stories from years ago is a lady, she was at a conference, and she came up to me at the end, and she said, did you see what God did with me? And I said, honestly, I didn't. We prayed for a lot of people. She, she said, well, after you and the, the team prayed for me, I, uh, the power of God came on me so strongly, I, I fell over and I hit the deck. I could, couldn't stand up. And she said, I just began to laugh so hard. She said, like, I've never laughed in my life. I laughed and I laughed and I laughed. And I was laughing so hard, I was kicking my legs in the air. And I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. I'm 68 years old. I'm at the front of a church laughing so hard and kicking my legs in the air like a baby. I'm like a baby. And she said, that was what I was thinking. And then she said, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he said, and 68 years ago, when you were born, your mother and your father didn't want a girl. They wanted a boy. And they never laughed. And they never rejoiced over you. But I rejoiced over you. And I'm catching you up with my joy. (laughs) You see, God was rejoicing over her all her life while she was living under the fear that I'm not enough, that I I haven't got what it takes, that I should have been a man rather than a woman, All of this junk, and he just caught her up with her joy. What did he replace the fear with? Passion. 
the heart of the creator is this. Victims are driven by fear. That's what's at the heart, whereas creators are driven by passion. I mean, look what the angel says to Gideon, right into his heart, in the winepress, in his fear, stewing in it, wallowing in it. He says this, stand up, hero. (laughs) Stand up, hero. Stand up, hero. The Lord is with you. Think about it. People who change the world, what's at the heart of them? What do you see again and again and again? It's passion. You see passion in people that change the world for good or for evil. You see passion. Think of the great heroes who've made a difference to the world. Think of the great people who weren't heroes who've made a difference to the world. Adolf Hitler, what do you see? Passion. It was evil, but it was passion. Winston Churchill, what do you see? Passion. Again and again, you look through the annals of history, what you see at the heart. Steve Jobs, what do you see? Passion. You see passion in people's hearts. Nelson Mandela, what do you see? Passion. It can be expressed through different personalities and and extroverts and introverts, but what you see is passion, passion, passion. Two of my heroes, Carol and Wendy, what do you see? Passion. When Carol gets going, man alive. The passion just oozes into me. The passion just oozes into me. And this is the interesting thing. Probably when she's like that, she probably feels a bit self-conscious, like she feels a bit foolish, because when you're passionate, you do feel a bit like that, but that's what brings the creative energy. It's passion that brings energy to others because that's what's happening. When you're passionate, energy is pouring out of you to the world around. You do feel a bit vulnerable. You feel a bit kind of exposed. But that's the point of being a creator. You're giving yourself away. You are creating out of your very heart. Passion has got teeth. This is what Jesus said when asked what the greatest commandment is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What's that? Passion. He's he's saying God is not interested in apathetic followers. He's looking for passion. David, one of the greatest kings, said this, My zeal for God and his work burns hot within me. Passion. Jeremiah, one of God's greatest prophets, Your message burns in my heart and bones. I cannot keep silent. Passion, 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 passion. And what happens when we're in victim thinking is we live from fear instead of from passion. But as we become to learn again how to live as creators, what happens? Passion. Passion starts to fill our hearts. You know, my first sermon, August the 15th, in this church, ever actually, August the 15th, 1999. Some of you were there. Some of you wish you weren't there. It wasn't that great. <laughs> but my first sermon was this. Thank you, Matt. You don't need to nod that vigorously. My first, <laughs> my first sermon was this. Passion for Jesus. <laughs> passion for Jesus. Because it's the heart of who we are. We're not born for just indifference and apathy. Passion. You know, one of the things we've seen in recent years in our community is our group life turned upside down. And, and, and before, many of our leaders led faithfully, they led obediently, they led because they felt that like that was the thing to do. But what we began to see was actually people were burning out. And, 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 you know, faithful obedience will get us so far. But what we began to realize, and that's not dismissing anything that went before because it was fantastic, but what we began to realize is that we need a greater energy in our group life. And we started to ask this question, what's God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? What is that question? It drives at the heart of passion. What has God made you to be? And it's just been amazing to see wonderful groups emerge, groups I would never dream of. Why? Because God has made us a creative people. And I love talking to our leaders now and them saying, I love my group and I love uniting with people who love the thing that I love and we do it together. Passion. This is what John Piper, one of the great American pastors, writes. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few great things that matter 
and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but those who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. But I know that not everyone in this crowd will want, will want to make a difference. There are hundreds of you. You don't care whether you make a lasting difference or for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement, you'd be satisfied. That, my friends, is a tragedy in the making. Three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, also pushing 80 and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed. The car went over a cliff. They were both killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. That was not a tragedy. That was glory. I'll tell you what is a tragedy. I'll read to you from the Reader's Digress, February 2002, what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball and collect shells. The American dream, come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let the last great work before you give an account to your creator be this, I collected shells. Come and see my shells. That, my friends, is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars trying to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream, and I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. Don't waste your life. It is so short. It is so precious. I grew up in a home where my father had one consuming vision to preach Jesus Christ. There was a plaque in our kitchen all my growing up years. Now it hangs in our living room. I have looked at it almost daily for 48 years. It says this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What's the point? Passion, passion, passion to make a difference, passion to create something of beauty, passion to change this world, to leave the lives around you a better place. Or are we just simply collecting shells? Because the world will say, there's some really pretty shells out there. Why don't you spend some time to collect them? And God says, you are too good for that. Your life was born to create and I'm not saying that all of life is, you know, you get, you're emptying the garbage and you're skipping out. Hello, world. <laughs> hello, Mr. Butterfly and Mr. Robin. And oh, hello, Mr. Snail. Off you go. You know, I'm not saying that the whole of life looks like that. You've got to empty the trash at some point. That is part of life. But if that's become all of life, if you're sitting here today, as I had to face myself sitting here realizing there is a lot of the passion that's gone then I would say this morning, it's time for a change of heart. It's time to stop letting that fear dominate and let passion start to rise again. What has God made you for? 
What has he put you uniquely on the planet for? Why are you here? What difference are you called to make? So much more we could say on that. The second thing is this, a change of focus. What I've learned in the last year is when I'm thinking like a victim again, because I said the paint is still wet, this is still a journey, but when I'm thinking like that, what do I notice is this. My focus is almost always on the problem. My focus is on the problem or my inability to fix the problem or the limitations that others are bringing so that I can't fix the problem. The focus is always on the problem. And you find Gideon in that same situation. Judges 6. Please, sir, he says to the angel, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted? Did not the Lord rise up and bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Where's his focus? On what God hasn't done. (laughs) On the problem. Judges 6, verse 15. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest of all the clans within Manasseh, and I'm the least of my father's house. Where's his focus? On his shortcomings, his inability to fix the problem. Victim thinking is almost always focused around the problem. It consumes us when we're thinking like victims. My lack of resources, my limitations, my inability to fix this thing or move forward in any way. Victim thinking centers there. This is what Judges 7 says. I didn't read you this bit earlier, but what happens is right on the night before Gideon is about to attack, this uncountable army with 300 men, (laughs) get that, an uncountable army with 300 men, right before the Lord speaks to him again, and he says this, Arise, go down against your enemies, for I've given them into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, anyone, go down with your enemies Go down to your enemy's camp with your servant. Basically, sneak down to their camp secretly. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand will be strengthened as you go down against that camp. So Gideon went down with his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. They snuck down overnight, and the Midianites lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. Their camels were without number, and as the sand is on the seashore in abundance, that's how they were. When Gideon came, a man was telling a dream to a comrade, and Gideon overheard it. And he said, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the, the camp of Midian, and came to a tent and struck it, so that it fell and turned upside down. And the tent lay flat, and his comrade said... This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. How he got from a cake of barley to that, I've got no idea. But anyway, but as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given this host of Midian into our hands. What happens to Gideon in that story? It's this, it's simply this, there's a shift of focus. He focuses first on the problem and he's getting nowhere. But when he shifts his focus to the God-given dream, what is it? Freedom. (laughs) Freedom. What, What they had practically, we have spiritually. Freedom. We are born for freedom, where we stop our focus being on the problem and shift our focus to to the God-given dream. Whatever it is for you, under the umbrella typically of freedom, we start to make progress. You might be hiding. You might be in a wine press. You might be thinking, I don't know if I can move out of here. The reality is, if you shift your focus off the problem to the God-given dream, what has God put in your heart? I'm not just talking about any kind of dream, because we believe in Christ, the one who puts the creative dreams in our hearts. I'm talking about your God-given dream, the thing that God has spoken into your life. When you put your focus there, when we stop and refuse to focus on the problem anymore and lift our gaze to God's given dream in our hearts, we've got the potential to move.
we've got the potential to move forward. Uh, just a, a, a small example, talking to a guy battling with an area in his life that he couldn't get free from, an area of sin that had dogged him for years. Prayed for him and I said, look, I want you to do this every morning, whether you messed up, whether you, whether you, whatever you did, every morning I want you to look yourself in the mirror and I want you to speak to this thing. I want you to say, I am going to be free from you. <laughs> what am I doing? I'm lifting his gaze above the problem to the freedom. He has been born for freedom and his focus lifted to freedom. That guy is free. That guy is free now. After living embattled for years, he is now free. What, what, part, the many things I'm sure part of that, one of those things was lifting his focus off the problem and onto the God-given dream. Change of heart. We've got to shift our hearts. Change of focus. The last thing is this, a change of action. When I'm in the victim state, my natural response is fight, flight, or freeze. Fight, flight, or freeze. You notice Gideon in this wine press, the angel, he's, so it's flight, he's hiding, we hide from the problem. The angel appears to him and what happens? Gideon starts to fight the guy. <laughs> he starts to argue. When you find yourself arguing with people who are trying to help you, persuading them why you cannot be helped, alarm bells. <laughs> that is classic victim thinking. When I find myself in that situation now, I'm waking up to it, I realize, okay, I'm thinking like a victim. When the people who are trying to help me, I fight against them. Is this just me or anybody else? Oh, it's just me, I know. But when I find myself fighting against the people who are trying to help me, that's classic victim thinking because victims fight, flight, or freeze. We freeze, we numb the pain, we do anything because we're just stuck. Or we run away or we just try and fight even the people that are help, helping us. You know, this, even this week I was chatting to a homeless guy. We just chatted to stop as a family. We just, just chatted to him. And, and uh, he said, uh, I asked him if he needed any food, and he didn't. And, and so he said, I'd love a coffee, though. So I said, oh, I'll buy you a coffee. And so I got up to buy him a coffee. He said, oh, when you do, don't go. We was right outside a, a shop that sold coffee. Don't go here. Would you mind going to the one down the road? Because the coffee is much better there. <laughs> Sad, but the reality was he wasn't ready to be helped. It wasn't ready to be helped. When I'm, when I, and that's what happens, isn't it, when we're in victim thinking, is we argue with the person who comes. Their, their help might not be perfect. It might not be perfectly delivered, so we argue about the packaging. The coffee doesn't taste quite right, so therefore don't, I, don't, I won't receive your help. We start to debate this. I can, you're looking at me blankly like I don't know what, you're talk, what, you're talking, what I'm talking about. But that's the reality, isn't it? We, we, we start to argue about the packaging because they didn't do it quite the way we felt like we needed it. And when we do that, we need to repent and say, do you know what, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm feeling stuck and I do need your help. What happens when we move out of victim thinking is we move to start as creators, think about the next step. The next step. Gideon's next step was not to take on the whole army. It was what? To tear down his father's the altar at his father's house. It was scary. He was freaking out. He went in the middle of the night, but he did it. It was something that God gave him that was within his ability to do. He took the next step. And then the next step after that was to recruit an army. And the next step after that was to shape that army. And the next step after that was to get God-given plan. And the next step after that was to defeat his enemies. But that's what we're called to, isn't it? To follow Jesus. He doesn't give us a blueprint. He gives us a guide. He says, come follow me, take the next step. And so often what I've found is when you're living in victim state, you can't, see, you can't see yourself getting to the end, so you refuse to take the next step. But when you start to think as a creator, you think, well, what step could I take next? What step could I take next? I remember I was 
talking with someone one time and we're facing a very difficult situation and I found myself saying, all we can do is pray. And as I walked away, the Holy Spirit whispered in my heart, all we can do is pray. All we can do then is speak to the most powerful being in the universe who calls himself our father and calls you his children. All we can do is speak to him, gosh, it must be bad. That's all we can do. If that's our only hope, whew, that's bad. I receive the rebuke. Because <laughs> sometimes all we can do, that's the only next step we can think of. But when we think of it like that, that's victim thinking. But when we think of it, gosh, you know what? They might, I might have all my options removed, but I've got one option that I can always take. I can pray. <laughs> and my prayers are powerful and effective. And creators begin to think through that lens. I, w- I want to read you this week the story of Terry Gabanga. I read it on the BBC, and it was actually reading this story that made me realise I needed to do this message as a follow-up from last uh, week. Terry was a, a pastor in Kenya, and she was sexually assaulted by a group of men on her wedding day. She thought she was going to be... They actually left her for dead. She thought she was going to die, but she lived. She was injured so badly, though, that the doctors said that she couldn't ever have children. Her husband, who was going to marry her on that day, waited for her to recover, and then they were married. But within a year, I think, he had died from carbon monoxide poisoning in a house that they rented. She was absolutely devastated. But slowly and surely, she began to rebuild her life. She was married again. And then miraculously, um, she subsequently conceived and had two children uh, against everything that the doctors thought was possible. And this is what she writes, and these are his words. These are her words, sorry. I wrote a book called Crawling Out of the Darkness about my ordeal to give people hope of rising again. I'm starting an organisation... We work with rape survivors, as I call them, not rape victims. We offer counselling and support. We're looking to start a halfway house for them where they can come and find their footing before going back to face the world. I've forgiven my attackers. It wasn't easy, but I realised I was getting a raw deal by being upset with people who probably don't care. My faith also encourages me to forgive and not repay evil with evil, but with good. The most important thing is to mourn, to go through every step of it, to get upset until you're willing to do something about your situation. You have to keep moving. You have to crawl if you have to, but move towards your destiny because it's waiting and you have to go and get it. I realise, you know, for some, that's a very painful story because it's very close to your own story. But I just wanted to finish this with her line, with her quote. Someone, to be honest, who has every right to think like a victim... (laughs) but who's chosen not to, who's realised I am bigger than this. I'm made differently to this. You have to keep moving. Crawl if you have to, but move towards your destiny because it's waiting and you have to go and get it. That's who God's made us to be. It might be the start as a change of heart. It's very often what happens. We've got to move from fear. We've got to change to passion might be a change of focus. A focus being predominantly when we're thinking like victims on the problem needs to move to, fo- to focus on the God-given dream. Or it might be a change of action. Fight, flight and freeze have to be rejected and instead we have to embrace what is the next step that I can take. You might think, 
I can't see my dream ever being fulfilled now. Well, one of the things that I found empowering was this. How close can you get to it then? <laughs> How close can you get to it if you can't see it being fulfilled? What is the next step? God is calling us, guys, as a people to be creators, yeah. to live out of our God-given image, to be like him. He yeah. made us in, our, in his image. We've got to live like that. What is your dream? What's in your heart? What is the next step for you? How do you live from this passion? Because we're born to be people like this, but also to raise a community like this. Wasn't it wonderful seeing our kids and the investment the team has put in to raise kids like that, to learn things that perhaps we never learned until much later in life. I dream of that, that we will build communities in this place and all over the place that have this at their DNA, that raise people who change the world, that wherever they're, whatever they're called to, wherever they go, that's what they do because that's what's inside of them. They live out of passion. They bring energy to the world around them. Instead of being part of the drain, the suck, the life drain out of this world, they are the ones who give energy because they know I'm born from a creator and his creative life is in me and I've been born to make a difference. I've been born that the pebbles I drop ripple through to eternity.